the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program. Today we'll talk with Robert Nash. He is the author of Last Words, Seven Sayings from the Heart of Christ on the Cross. He'll join us in this first hour. And then at the top of the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Hans von Spakovsky. He is an authority on a wide range of issues with the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about a question that's been floating around. Can the coronavirus... Uh, force an election date change and who has the authority to do so. Some are speculating that the president would post or at least attempt to postpone the election. Does he have the authority? Does Congress have the authority? How about the states? We'll get into that when he joins us at the top of the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, happy St. Patrick's Day to you. I say that uh, in honor of my sainted mother-in-law. We're not going to talk about St. Patrick as we typically do because there is so much news swirling around. Keeping up with it all has been Something of a challenge, so we'll kick things off taking a look at some of the day's headlines. Well, President Trump announced on Monday as a set, uh, or rather a set of guidelines, that he said Americans should follow to prevent the further spread of the coronavirus, despite admitting that the pandemic could stretch into July or August. Speaking during a briefing of the Coronavirus Task Force, the president outlined a plan to slow the spread of COVID-19 in 15 days. With several weeks of focused action, we can turn the corner and turn it quickly, the president said our government is prepared to do whatever it takes. Now, just to clarify, um, uh, coronavirus is the uh, is the virus. COVID-19 is the uh, what happens in the body. It's the disease that's a response to the coronavirus. That's why there are two different words. Uh, The coronavirus is not new, but this is what do they call it? A novel coronavirus. This is a version of it that we have not yet seen. We don't have any antibodies to fight it. Uh, yet that will come over time. But COVID-19 is what uh, we get if we are infected with the coronavirus. Anyway, at another point during the news conference, asked if the U.S. was headed into a recession, the president replied, well, it might be. But then he said, we're not thinking in terms of recession, we're thinking in terms of the virus. Well, the guidelines advised that older people and those with underlying health conditions stay home and away from other people. Officials recommended that large swaths of the population isolate themselves and everyone avoids social gatherings or groups of more than 10 people. They also said Americans should work from home if possible, avoid eating or drinking in bars and restaurants, and avoid discretionary travel, shopping trips, and social visits. Meanwhile, Governor Mike DeWine on Monday night announced his state's health director will order Ohio's polls to close Tuesday as a health emergency over the spread of the coronavirus, a dramatic move just hours before the state's scheduled primaries. DeWine had recommended that the primaries be postponed, but a county judge had denied the request Monday evening. President Trump, speaking at a coronavirus briefing at the White House uh, Monday afternoon, said he'd leave such decisions on postponing a primary up to the state's 
it's been emphasized, I think postponing is unnecessary. Well, Ohio, rather, is the only um, one state of the four states scheduled to hold presidential primaries today to move to postpone its uh, contest. Officials in the other states, Arizona, Florida, and Illinois, said their primaries will still take place. And that could give Democratic presidential nomination frontrunner Joe Biden a chance to deliver a potential knockout blow to his opponent, his only remaining opponent, Senator Bernie Sanders, who's uh, fighting to avoid elimination from the White House race. And the first ever clinical trial in a quest for a coronavirus vaccine began on Monday as the first injections were administered at Kaiser Permanente Washington Health Research Institute in Seattle. Four volunteer participants were given injections of a vaccine created by Moderna Inc. in collaboration with the Vaccine Research Center and the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Phase one of the study is intended to test the safety of the three dose levels of the new vaccine, mRNA-1273, named after the genetic material that makes up the injections and which researchers say can produce a vaccine very quickly, very quickly meaning a year to a year and a half. This study is the first step in the clinical development of an mRNA vaccine, according uh, to those involved against the coronavirus. Dr. Tal Zaks, chief medical officer at Moderna, in a statement said the trial will include 45 healthy adults, 18 to 55 rather. Each participant will receive two shots, 28 days apart. Three different doses will be tested on 15 people each and and the participants will be studied to determine whether the vaccine is safe. The president has rolled out tougher guidelines for Americans to follow over the next few weeks, and the administration is proposing an $850 billion tax relief focused on stimulus. China bots are flooding Twitter to spread anti-Trump conspiracy theories, and NBC News spreads Chinese communist propaganda amid the coronavirus outbreak. Ouch. Tennessee brothers who stockpiled nearly 18,000 bottles of hand sanitizers have donated their stash. And Ohio's Supreme Court allowed the delay of the primary election they denied the night before. The Supreme Court has postponed its March oral arguments and Amazon is hiring 100,000 more workers and give, uh, giving raises to current staff to deal with the coronavirus demands. The International Criminal Court is preparing legal war on the United States. Well, today is St. Patrick's Day. 1782 on this day in history, New York City holds its first St. Patrick's Day parade. This will be the first year the St. Patrick's Day parade has not been held in New York. 19. 19- 12. The Campfire Girls organization is incorporated in Washington, D.C., two years to the day after it was founded by Thetford, Vermont, or rather in Thetford, Vermont. The group is now known as Campfire. By the way, I was a Campfire Girl. Wohilo. Work, help, love. Uh, 2006, on this day in history, federal regulators report the deaths of two women in addition to four others who had taken the abortion pill RU486. Planned Parenthood says it will immediately stop disregarding the approval instructions for the drug's use. That was in 2006, widely used today. On this day in history, 2014, Russian President Vladimir Putin recognizes Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula as an independent and sovereign country ignoring sanctions imposed by the United States and European countries. Well, one writer uh, posted a sign-up sheet someone put up on their elevator offering to help the sick, the elderly, by getting them food. Citizens are apparently stepping up, helping each other in this time of crisis. Ben Shapiro writes, things to do today. Call five friends and check in to see how they're doing. Find out if an elderly neighbor or relative needs any groceries, pharmacy goods, and bring them over. 
One Italian tenor, his name is Maurizio Marcini. He serenaded Florence uh, from his balcony, and oh, what a beautiful voice he has. Dr. Albert Moeller says, we are, after all, talking about matters of life and death, the gift of human life and what it means to care for our neighbors. We are confronted with differences between selfishness and altruism. Indeed, the coronavirus raises just about every question imaginable, given its unsurpassed urgency. And the Homeland Security Advisory Council at Pepperdine created a real-time map of everything COVID-19 related to the state of California, including grab-and-go food centers. And the Wall Street Journal is providing some tips to help get kids off screens during their time at home. And John Bolton says accusations against the president and the National Security Council are false. John Bolton reporting um, that alleges uh, the Trump administration dissolved the NSC offices related to our bio uh, defense are both false and misleading. Listen to those who ran the effort. This is a must read for everyone who values truth over politics in, uh, in the time of crisis. Again, authored by John Bolton and Britt Hume called it another myth debunked. However, it will probably continue to circulate for some time. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 16 minutes after 4 o'clock. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back, 19 minutes after 4 o'clock. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Robert Nash, Last Words, Seven Sayings from the Heart of Christ on the Cross. Well, March 17th, primaries. Uh, There are some states who are voting and delegates are at stake today. Democratic voters headed to the polls today to vote in the the party's first set of primaries after voters have the chance to see the last two remaining contenders for the Democratic presidential nomination. Former Vice President Joe Biden and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders go head to head, head to head rather in a debate. Well, the former vice president has taken control of the race after wins in 10 states on Super Tuesday and at least four states last Tuesday. He now holds a significant delegate lead over Sanders in what well, became essentially a one-on-one race after billionaire Mike Bloomberg of Ma- and Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren exited the race following Super Tuesday. Sanders admitted on the 10th uh, the primaries uh, were not a good night for his campaign while saying that he would stay in the race for the Democratic nomination on Wednesday. Well, the March 17th races, which award 15 percent of all the delegates in the Democratic primary and will bring the number of uh, delegates awarded in the Democratic race to 61 percent of the total delegates available could be Sanders last stand. Arizona, there are 67 pledged delegates at stake in Arizona's Democratic presidential primary. They have gone ahead with that. The results in Arizona will be an important indicator as Sanders has typically fared better in western states while Biden has excelled in more diverse states. Arizona, sitting on the U.S. southern border, is both western and diverse. Florida is the biggest prize available today, awarding 219 pledged delegates in all, a diverse swing state. A good performance in Florida will help Sanders or Biden make the case that they're the most electable Democrat to face President Donald Trump. Illinois, the home state of former President Barack Obama, will dole out 155 pledged delegates uh, on the 17th. Sanders laid some groundwork in Illinois earlier in the primary, visiting the state for three days to Biden's one on the 11th of March. And Ohio, originally scheduled to have its primary today before Governor Mike DeWine announced a lawsuit Monday to push back the date to the 2nd of June. A judge ruled against DeWine's suit, but the governor announced that his state health director would prevent polls from opening anyway and that his secretary of state would work in the courts to set a new election date. We cannot conduct this election tomorrow, he stressed in an announcement 
on Monday, uh, Monday rather. Well, during this time, when we face an unprecedented public health crisis to conduct an election tomorrow would force poll workers and voters to place themselves at unacceptable health risk of contracting coronavirus. He said in a statement after the judge had ruled against his suit to postpone the election. As such, Health Director Dr. Amy Acton with order f- um, uh, will order the polls closed as a health emergency. And while the polls will be closed tomorrow, Secretary of State Frank LaRose will seek remedy uh, through the courts to extend voting options so that every voter who wants to vote will be granted that opportunity. The Ohio State Supreme Court, in a ruling without an opinion Tuesday morning, denied a last-second effort to force the state to move ahead with the Tuesday elections, giving further legitimacy to the governor's 11th-hour maneuver. But there remain three states voting today in the uh, in the primaries. Now, Louisiana became the first state to postpone the primary or caucus on Friday with Governor John Bell Edwards. He signed an executive order there to move uh, the uh, April 4th election to late June. So this has uh, happened in Georgia. They also moved their election from the 24th of this month to May 19th. And Puerto Rico, though it's not a state, it holds primaries for both parties. And the Puerto Rican uh, Republican Party already took place on the 8th, but the Puerto Rican uh, Democratic Party last week requested that the state delay its Democratic primary until um, that was scheduled rather for the 29th until the uh, 26th of April. So some changes have already uh, been made. Meanwhile, Senator um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said the Senate will pass the House coronavirus package despite its flaws to show the American people that Washington lawmakers can move in a swift, bipartisan and bicameral way to address the global pandemic. A number of my members think there are considerable shortcomings in the House bill. My counsel to them is to gag and vote for it anyway. McConnell said uh, Tuesday after lunching with his fellow Republicans, well, the Senate will take up the uh, House bill beginning today, then move uh, immediately to crafting bigger legislation to stimulate the economy that will need 60 votes to pass the upper chamber. The majority speak, the majority leader, rather, McConnell said the uh, the Senate would at recess until another bill uh, is passed, rather won't recess. We're going to move here in warp speed for the Senate, which almost never does anything quickly. Well, McConnell said he's uh, creating uh, three task forces within the Senate GOP to design the legislation and work with the White House. Afterwards, he will consult with Democrats on what can be achieved. The Senate GOP is uh, focused on ensuring health care workers have the resources they need. Small businesses can survive the outbreak and help American workers. Earlier, the White House said it wanted direct cash payments for workers, and McConnell echoed a similar tone. We need to directly help American workers and families face an uncertain period. And particularly, we're examining policy tools to put money directly and quickly into the hands of the American people. Now, keep in mind... Directly and quickly in Washington speak isn't quite as direct and quick as you and I might mean it, but certainly on an expedited uh, path for Washington. Democratic leader Senator Chuck Schumer, who designed his own $750 billion proposal that he says puts workers first, questioned why McConnell is choosing to leave Democrats out of the talks uh, for uh, the outset. Um, The House bill has the support of President Trump. It will make coronavirus testing free, expand unemployment aid to states, offer 14 paid sick days and extend emergency leave for workers dealing with the coronavirus. Um, Again, all of this still on the table. Well, to stimulate a flagging economy with the coronavirus pandemic, the president said Tuesday that his administration is uh, going big by sending out checks directly to Americans. During the daily briefing with White House's Coronavirus Task Force, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin 
said more details are coming, but suggested the amount of money in the uh, in the checks could be larger than previously reported. The proposed payroll tax holiday would get people money uh, over the next six to eight months. Uh, we're looking at sending checks to Americans immediately, and that's what you know, in Washington, six to eight months is immediately. And what we've heard from hardworking Americans is many companies have shut down, whether it's bars or restaurants. Americans need cash now, and the president wants to get cash out now. I mean, now in the next two weeks. Now, that would be quite a feat. Well, the Trump administration seems to be um, abandoning the payroll tax cut that it uh, advocated since last week because it wouldn't infuse cash into the economy quickly enough when businesses are closing temporarily and the travel and hospitality industry face hardship, leading to workers losing hours, if not their jobs altogether. Well, asked about the $1,000 checks to each American, uh, Senator uh, as Senator Mitt Romney uh, had proposed, Mnuchin said, I think it's clear we don't need to send people uh, who make a million dollars a year checks. Well, Trump referred to coronavirus as the invisible enemy. And the goal is to get the money to working Americans as quickly as possible. Obviously, some people shouldn't be getting a check for $1,000. The president said we'll have a pretty good idea by the end of the day what we're going to do. The president said there are four different ways to do it. A payroll tax in one way, but it would uh, come over a period of months, many months. We want to do something much faster than that. Uh, when pe- when pressed on costs, the president responded that administration officials were ready to talk details with congressional leaders, including Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. We don't want to talk about it, but it's a substantial number. We're going big. We could um, do it two ways. We could uh, keep going back every day and every week. We're going big, the president said. Well, Trump said the economy needs a big infusion of cash. Uh, as opposed to uh, passing smaller measures, uh, we want to go big, solid. The country is very strong with this invisible enemy. We don't want airlines going out of business. We don't want people losing their jobs and not having money to live when they're um, uh, doing uh, very well just four weeks ago. Well, the airline industry is in crisis. Uh, worse than uh, at 9-11, Mnuchin said of the COVID virus for the airline industry, Uh, They're almost ground to a halt. The Treasury Secretary said the president wants to make sure that although we don't want people to travel unless it's critical, we want to maintain the right to have domestic travel. Well, as of Tuesday afternoon, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention had reported 4,226 cases of COVID-19 across 49 states and 75 deaths. One on another front, the president announced that Medicare has made an historic expansion of telehealth programs to help seniors who need checkups stay at home. Today, we are announcing a dramatic expansion of our Medicare telehealth services. Medicare patients can now visit any doctor by phone or video conference at no additional cost, including with commonly used services like FaceTime and Skype, an historic breakthrough. The president added this has not been done before. In addition, states have the authority to cover telehealth services for their Medicare patients. And by doing this, the patient is not seeing the doctor per se, but they are seeing the doctor. So there is no getting closer Uh, during this time. We will not enforce applicable HIPAA uh, penalties so that doctors can greatly expand services for their patients using telehealth. And in the midst of it all, the Trump administration is allowing Americans to delay paying their taxes and is hoping to send stimulus checks directly to people as the nation grapples with the coronavirus pandemic, COVID-19. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin is encouraging Americans who can to file their taxes on or before the 15th of April to do so that they uh, don't lose out on their tax refunds. But he says that if Americans owe the IRS money, 
They can defer up to $1 million for individuals and $10 million for corporations without interest and penalties for 90 days. President uh, Trump and Mnuchin also said during the White House briefing that they want uh, to send checks to Americans in the next two weeks in an effort to curb the economic impact of the pandemic. Across the United States, over 4,660 people uh, have been infected with COVID-19 virus and 95 people have died. Those numbers continue to move upward. Up next, we're going to talk with Robert J. Nash. He is the author of Last Words, Seven Sayings from the Heart of Christ on the Cross. We'll take a look at what those sayings are and what those seven words are when we return in just a few moments. Also in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Hans von Spakovsky. What about the election? Could the coronavirus force a change of date? And does the president have the authority to do that? We'll talk about who does and doesn't. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 35 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. The last words of a hero or heroine in a story packs a punch. The final chapter of a book ties up loose ends. And epithets, the eulogies, have a summarizing power. Phone calls and visits and whispers of those on hospice become riches locked away in the fading memories of those left behind. So writes my next guest. The last words of Christ are some of the most important words a person could ever read, and he wants his readers to feel the weight of those words in their gut as they witness the uh, the death of Christ. These words contain a wealth of meaning that we should not forget or neglect. He's written a book that seeks to mine those words to challenge the soul. Well, Jesus' words in Scripture capture who he was and what he was about. His last words spoken on the cross in the midst of immense suffering were full of forgiveness, hope, and compassion. Well, in his latest book, Last Words, Seven Sayings from the Heart of Christ on the Cross, Robert Nash offers a fresh perspective on the obedience of the cross revealing the heart of God who sent his son to die. Well, Robert Nash grew up in a family of doctors in Rochester, Minnesota. He thought his life would follow that same path. He went to Wheaton College, planned to pursue medicine, but left with a heart for pastoral ministry. Well, following college, he worked in youth ministry, pursued a master's in divinity at Bethel Seminary. He served as a chaplain at Bethesda Hospital and met his wife, Katie. Well, the Nashes have helped plant churches in the Minnesota area before moving to Michigan to pursue full-time ministry. He is currently serving as pastor of Sawyer Highlands Church in southwest Michigan and has a heart for missions, has traveled several countries for short-term mission trips, and joins us today to talk about his book, Last Words, Seven Sayings from the Heart of Christ on the Cross. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi. Thanks uh, for having me. I appreciate you. Appreciate the time, Georgie. Obviously, the events at the end of Christ's earthly ministry are significant, but what inspired you to write your first book about the last words of Christ on the cross? Well, thanks for ask, asking me that. Uh, yeah, I, I uh, you know, years ago when I got married, uh, grew up in an evangelical church and was real familiar with Easter, but not so much with Lent and, uh, and kind of what goes with that. We were at a, uh, a, a great church, wonderful worship, small groups, teaching, but they had a Good Friday service. It hadn't been to a Good Friday service, and it was uh, set to a, uh, the music was set to a minor key. The, the message was, was moving and focused on the last week of Christ in a way that was very somber and uh, got me thinking, this is something I haven't heard before. And I want to explore more. I, I read a number of books over the years about the gospel. And as I was reading, I, I didn't find anything that was written about 
the last words of Christ. I know a number of pastors uh, had a friend uh, locally here do a series on the last words of Christ, but uh, there's 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 not a lot of books out there on it. And in my you know, exploration, I think there's a lot to offer as we explore what does Christ say and what does that mean for us. And so I tried to write a book that um, the average person could read uh, that re- relates to the average person's life. And um, and it, it was just a you know it's kind of birthed out of my pastoral ministry here too. I, I as a pastor I do a Good Friday message and I try to speak not just to you know the happy resurrection but also what was the significance of the, the death of Christ and, mm-hmm. and bring people into that experience. Um, and then as I was doing that, people said, "Hey, you should you should write this." And uh, so I I wrote it. So what I what I'd already done I, I transferred it into a book form and then. Um, over the course of a couple of years here, I've uh, made it filled out the rest of the messages I haven't actually t- uh, preached and uh, into a book form with the help of uh, some great editors and some friends uh, reading it. Um, and so I think it's a it's been a worshipful uh, book for me, and it's it's been a help for our congregation here. Yeah, yeah. Well, the title of the book is Last Words. Seven Sayings from the Heart of Christ on the Cross. So you really focus on two things. The last words are taken from uh, seven sayings that Jesus makes while on the cross. And each of them focuses on, uh, that you focus on, has a singular word um, that you, you single out. What are those seven words? And sort of explain the structure yeah. of the book. Sure, I can do that. Uh, yeah, so it's a short book, uh, seven, eight chapters, um, and there's seven sayings. So forgive is one word, and so I focus on forgiveness. Today, behold, why, thirst, finished, and Father. And those signify the a whole saying that Christ said on the cross as he was dying there. You make the point that we see the cross today as a beautiful symbol of what Jesus did, and it certainly is that, um, yeah. and our hope of salvation. But you emphasize what the cross meant in Jesus' day, and we would do well to consider that because it helps us appreciate the full weight of the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. Amen. Yeah. So, you know, I, I've got a cross necklace. We have cross decorations mm-hmm. uh, around. And uh, and I think we, we lose the significance of, of and you said it well, it's, it, it represents, um, it represents the, the tool of death, the execution of of the guilty in uh, the ancient times, it was it was not a symbol of beauty or uh, worship. Um, it was a sign of humiliation. Uh, in Galatians, it says, "It's cursed is the one who hangs on a tree." Uh, Jesus hung there naked, dying, and the thief next to him said, "This man has done nothing wrong. He had done nothing wrong. He was framed. He was." Uh, uh, Put there, mocked, beat, and uh, I think getting into that the setting of it helps us understand the great love that God has for us, um, the sinfulness of sin, and the and the and the wonderful forgiving grace of Christ. And so I try to take uh, I want to take readers into that um, into that that mood and in that those moments. Well, let's focus on the sayings that you focus on from which you derive the the seven words. The first you just made reference to in Luke twenty three verse uh, thirty four. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Uh, and the word that you highlight is forgive. Talk a bit yeah. about that in this context. Yeah. Um, so this this is kind of interesting. He's he's praying to the Father, and he's asking the Father to forgive these people who have crucified him. And I think about myself, and what do we do when we're, we're persecuted? 
or we're treated unjustly, we're attacked. Well, we typically, you know, we fight or flee. You know, I, I might do either, depending on the circumstance. And what is he doing? Neither. He is expressing a prayer of compassion on those who are killing him. And I find that's just so profound. One, it's a it's a lesson for me. What do I do to those who hurt me? But two, it's a it's a lesson to me. Look at the the compassion of Christ in those moments. It, it and that's what we see again and again and again in these last words in these moments. He is a, a man of compassion in the midst of his crisis. Um, and so I, ex- I explore what is forgiveness for us uh, briefly and then try to unpack where are we maybe harboring, where do we harbor unforgiveness, bitterness, and where can we allow the forgiveness of Christ to transform us to become a more forgiving people? The second phrase you uh, refer to is also found in Luke, the 23rd chapter, but the 43rd verse, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus is speaking to the thief on the cross mm-hmm. who was being hanged for the offenses that he actually committed. And you focus on the right. word today. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm not a great titleist person who writes these titles. I'm thinking what captures the significance of that that phrase, today, this day, this man is going to be with him in paradise. In the interaction, there's two thieves next to Jesus, one mocking him, railing on him. The other one offends Jesus and says, this man's done nothing wrong, knowing full well the wrong that he has done. And I take the reader, what would it have been like to be him, to have your your yourself um, and your sin just, just displayed to, to the whole world and to know that you've done it, horrible things, and then be punished for it, but then this man be mocked for doing nothing? Um, this man expresses a faith in that defense, and um, and then what does what does he say to Christ? He says, uh, "Remember me. Will you remember me?" And in that question, I, in, when you come into your kingdom, I think in that is an acknowledgement that Christ isn't dead when he dies on the cross; that there is a, a future beyond for him, and in uh, some kind of faith. And Christ acknowledges that today you will be with me in paradise. What I love about that immediacy of that is in the immediacy of of, of that that pronouncement. This man has has no alms to give. This man has not, doesn't have a pure life to to show for himself. This man doesn't have a religious pedigree or of ethnic heritage. This man, what he has is he has a a seed-like faith, a mustard seed-like faith. The Bible says that it's by grace, you can say, through faith. It's not a work, so no one may boast. And I hang on this, uh, on that that verse, and I see it applied here uh, in Christ's word to him. So today, you'll be with me in paradise. That's that's. That's his hope, and that, that's mine as well. Um, Absolutely. When I, yeah. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a break here in just a moment. Again, we're talking with Robert Nash. His book is uh, titled Last Words, Seven Sayings from the Heart of Christ on the Cross. These are wonderful reflections as we approach the season. And in fact, many of us will be separated from the congregations we would typically come together with uh, to remember what Christ has done for us and to celebrate his resurrection uh, this is a great uh, resource to to um, ponder during this uh, approaching season. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments, but I do need to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're continuing my conversation with Robert Nash. His book is titled Last Words, Seven Sayings from the Heart of Christ on the Cross. And what wonderful reflections 
uh, during this and every season as we think about what Christ has done for us. We've been talking about a couple of the the uh, sayings that Jesus made and the words that you single out. One of them mm-hmm. is perhaps somewhat surprising, and that comes from John 19, verses 26 and 27, when Jesus, referring to his mother, speaks to John, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. Um, it's sort of unexpected because of the tremendous um, uh, pain that Jesus was experiencing at that time, and yet he mm-hmm. is thinking about his mother. What do you have to say about that phrase in general and the word behold in particular? Well, there's there's so much there. Um, behold, um, he's making a statement right now. Pay attention. This is this is what I'm going to say. When he has to speak, he he's not dying of bleeding to death. He has he's he's dying of suffocation. So when he makes a statement, it, it means something. He's pushing on his feet. He's pulling down on his hands. He's getting air in his lungs, and he's going to say something. Uh, Mary, when she was, uh, when J- Jesus was very young, was given a prophecy that a sword will pierce her side. And here we see the prophecy being fulfilled as a, a mother is watching her son being brutally killed um, on this this day. And and Jesus is there and again, where I would, you know, where a natural person is going to run to flight, to flee, to think of themselves and preserve themselves. He's thinking of his mom and offering her a word of comfort. So she does have sons. We know that through the text. Uh, she has other sons who typically would take care of her. But he's extending care in this moment um, to his believer, John, who's there with him. Here's the woman to take care of. Here's, here's your mother. And then John, who's betrayed him in the Garden of Gethsemane just hours before. I presume he had guilt and shame and this mix of emotions and how is you know how is how's Jesus going to look at me and think of me and he's thinking of him in compassion and so I, I I think it's important for us you know in the midst of our pain and our hurt to see that we have a Lord who is compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in love I think when we look at this beholding we are beholding the compassion and comfort and consolation of our great Savior Jesus Christ that's what, I, that's what I see in this word and this this phrase here The next phrase that you focus on comes from Matthew 27, verse 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And again, this, I think, is is somewhat puzzling because uh, Jesus was intentional in coming. He was sent, uh, understanding what was was to happen. What does he mean by this phrase? And you single out the word why. Yeah, I think why is the question that we would ask, right? Why why this? Why an innocent death? It doesn't make sense. I think we, we all have our questions and doubts from time to time. He, he says that word along with that phrase. And what uh, those who study this know is it's a direct quote, quote from Psalm 22. And so I explore and I, I want us to explore as we think of this word in the season. Why? Let's explore Psalm 22. And you're going to see the prophetic fulfillment of, of specific things that happen in Jesus' life a thousand years before they, they're going to happen. Uh, again and again and again, they cast lots for his clothing. They pierce his, they pierce him. Um, but it also ends with a hopeful word. Um, in the midst of this question, why? I think there's also, as you talked about, the sacrifice that Christ is doing, the substitution, substitutionary sacrifice. He's dying on the cross in our place, and so there is the the the, the wrath of God being poured out in the Son on our behalf, so that we would never have to do that. Um, but there's this there's this question, and in our minds we can think of a lot more things than what we're saying at the moment. And so, I, I, as Jesus is saying this, it's keying up a whole bunch of things that, from Psalm 22 that I take us back to to meditate on and think about of the the exchange that Christ is making 
and the hopefulness of the, of the resurrection of Christ. It's just days away. Mm-hmm. Um, the next phrase is just really two words out of John nineteen twenty eight. Mm-hmm. I thirst. And it's not surprising that Jesus would pronounce uh, the, the need for, um, uh, for hydration, but uh, tell us what, what we can learn from these words. And again, thinking about the circumstances under which any words would be uttered um, tells you the, that these words are important uh, because it took so much to utter them. I thirst. What, what do we take from that? Yeah, this, this I think is really an expression of his humanity. Uh, the, the Psalms do talk about the thirsting, the thirst of the Savior, but I think he is thirsting. I think that that's what it is. That's what we see here. And what that's the significance of that is he was fully man. Not only was he fully God, he was fully man. And so what that indicates for us is that there's a, the substitution is complete. This is it. This is a one for one substitute. He is able to satisfy the, the penalty for our sins. And so that our sins are gone and forgiven and, and, and we are cleansed by the blood of Christ. And so uh, he offers satisfaction for our thirst. He understands our thirst. In Hebrews, it says he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. He, he became fully man and dwelt among us. Um, John 1 uh, talks about the word dwelling among us. And so there's this humanity of Christ we see in this word. And then I think I, I, we, we can also recognize what are our thirsts? You know, what are what are we longing for? Jesus says, or God says in Isaiah 55, and Jesus, I think, would uh, echo this. It says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Um, Jesus satisfies our thirst in him. And so I, I, I see that as a consolation because he understands but and a comfort in that he does find, we do find our satisfaction in him. The next one is found in John nineteen thirty. It is finished. Um, mm-hmm. and it, it's so rich with so much more than, well, this battle on the cross right now is finished. It, it means so much more than that. But what should we ponder as we consider the use of the word finished in one of Jesus' final phrases? You know, what I did is I, I went through all the different scriptures I could find that talk about what is what was accomplished on his in his death. And I, I looked at some systematic theologies and I came up with this list and my, and the editors were like, people, people want, are, are, have a hard time reading this. <laughs> That's not the style of a book that you want to uh, communicate. So maybe the reader would do that. Maybe you want to do that just Easter. Uh, what I tried to do is boil it down to something that's more readable. Mm-hmm. Through the cross, he took our sins. Um, he took our sins. So they're gone. We are forgiven. As I said, um, we are, uh, we are redeemed. He bought us. We belong to him. We are cleansed. We are washed and clean. I know some people struggle with guilt and shame, and that is gone. There is no condemnation, Romans 8 says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we can be in Christ Jesus by repenting and trusting in him as our Lord and Savior right now, today, because of what was done 2,000 years ago. Uh, The Bible says we're brought near. We're brought near to God. Sometimes it feels like he's far away. He's distant. You know what? He, He can be right here in our presence as we're talking by the power of the Spirit, in the truth of the Word, um, as we, we trust in Him. Uh, through the cross, we're delivered. We're delivered from the, the power, the slavery to sin. We can say no to sin and yes to God and follow Him in righteousness by grace through the power of the Holy Spirit. Through the cross, we have a purpose. You remember at the end, He just says, go into all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to deserve all that I've commanded you. He, he gives us that mission based on and by His death on the cross. Um, he's defeated our enemy and defeated, you know, death, and we have a hope of heaven. That, those are just a few of the things. There are many more uh, that I want to 
I, I think we, we do well to think about when he says it is finished, there's so much more, like you said, and, and, and we do well to meditate on those. And it, I think it inspires worship when we start thinking, yes. wow, wow, that's what he did for me. Yeah. Well, there's one more phrase, and we don't have time to, to mention it, but our listeners will just have to pick up a copy of Last Words, <laughs> Seven Sayings from the Heart of Christ on the Cross. And again, a great devotional to reflect on. Um, the words of Jesus that were uttered for our uh, benefit. Where can our listeners uh, get a copy of your book that's published by New Growth Press? Yeah, Jernina, uh, we on any anywhere books are sold. Uh, so New Growth Press, Amazon, Target, um, wherever books are sold. Okay. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and uh, stay healthy. All right. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Again, last words, seven sayings from the heart of Christ on the cross. Robert J. Nash. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. And when we return, we're going to talk with Hans von Spakovsky. Uh, We'll talk about whether or not the uh, uh, election is likely to be postponed. And if such a thought were uh, to arise, who has the authority to do that? That's coming up after news and traffic at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you back with us. James Blind is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering. America is shutting down. And my next guest points out in his recent column that for those imaginative reporters who see a Russian lurking behind every tree and keep asking him if the president can use this pandemic as an excuse to delay the 2020 presidential election, the answer is no. Well, what does the Constitution permit? Can the executive branch, uh, do they have authority uh, to delay or reschedule or otherwise change the federal election? What about Congress and what about the states? Well, here to talk with us about that is Hans von Spakovsky. He is an authority on a wide range of issues that include civil rights, civil justice, the First Amendment, immigration, and much more uh, with the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Georgine, thanks for having me back. I suppose I shouldn't be surprised that there are those who don't have anything better to do than to speculate during this coronavirus outbreak uh, about whether or not the president is going to exploit this circumstance to somehow delay the election to his own advantage. But apparently that's a, a question that's floating around out there. So I thought it would be a good idea to address it. Under the Constitution, does the president or Congress, for that matter, or the states have the authority to impact the date of an election? Uh, the, the president has no authority to change the date of either the federal election or any state elections like the primaries going on. Um, the states have certainly have authority to change the dates of their state elections, and that would include state primaries. In most states, of course, it's the legislature that has to do that. But in some states, uh, Florida, for example, um, the state legislatures have passed laws that give their governors the ability to suspend or delay an election uh, in in a state of emergency. Um, the Congress also has no authority over state elections, state primaries, but Congress is the, the branch of the federal government that can change the date of the federal election, which, as you know, this year is November 3rd. And that's because the Constitution specifically uh, gives Congress the right to set the date for congressional elections, and it also gives Congress the power to set the date for the presidential election. But the only way that November 3rd date could be uh, changed is if um, a bill is passed through the U.S. House, the U.S. Senate, and then is signed by the president that amends 
the current federal statute setting the November 3rd date. Now, are there specifications within the Constitution that uh, outline under what circumstances that might be possible? I mean, it does require a state of emergency, or, or are there any directives with regard to when this might um, be considered? No, there's no limitations or conditions of any kind. All the Constitution says is that uh, that it, Congress has the authority to set the date for uh, congressional elections and for the presidential election. So Congress could basically do whatever they want when it comes to comes to this issue. How likely is it? I, I think it's very unlikely that Congress will pass any kind of amendment to the current federal statute and change the November 3rd uh, election date. Now, I guess the, the reason this is floating around is that the, the notion behind it is that somehow it would be an advantage to postpone the election on the part of President Trump, who does not, as you've just explained, have the authority to have an impact on uh, when ballots are cast. Uh, I, I think one of the concerns that we're hearing about now is the postponement of the primaries uh, and the impact that might have on the, the candidates in the Democrat Party who are seeking their party's nomination, that uh, certain groups are more likely to participate than others, for example, the young versus the old. Any thoughts on on the advantage that um, changing the date of an election might have and uh, the advantage that changing primary dates uh, that are currently being moved around might have? No, I don't think anybody can really uh, accurately predict what kind of a effect that might have on different groups, depending on their age and socioeconomic background. But the, the thing I think for people to keep in mind, and this is certainly true for any upcoming primaries that are going to occur in the next few months, including early in the summer, and that's that, look, in every state of the United States, you can vote by absentee ballot. And you can vote by absentee ballot uh, without ever leaving your home. So even if you're quarantined, um, you can request your absentee ballot. It'll get mailed to you. You fill it out. You drop it in your mailbox. The post office comes and picks it up and delivers it. And you can do all that without ever leaving your home. So as long as you've got a warning ahead of time, um, you're going to be able to vote in the upcoming primaries. So um, by all accounts, we are going to have a federal election on November 3rd, no matter what happens with the coronavirus. Yes, that, that, is the, that is the answer to that question that's been floating around. Like I said, unless Congress itself acts to change that date. And again, I just don't think that's very likely. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't see that that would happen either. Now, are there people who are genuinely considering uh, whether or not the president would uh, try to change the date of the election as a result of the pandemic? Well, you know, I, I've heard speculation <laughs> about it. I've gotten calls from uh, reporters asking me uh, whether the president can do that. And, uh, you know, the answer that I keep giving is no. And I don't think there's anybody else that really disagrees with that. So I, I think I think this speculation is just caused by, you know, a lot of people that just don't like the president and somehow uh, think that, he would try to take advantage of that. And actually, you know, what's interesting about this is, I don't know if you recall this, but I remember hearing um, people talking in 2012 about Barack Obama saying, oh, we don't trust him. We, we think he'll, he'll refuse to leave office. And, of course, that just didn't happen. Nothing like that has ever happened in the entire history of the United States. But I guess if you don't have anything to talk about, it's something at least to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's correct. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much for talking with us. I always appreciate your your input.
Sure, thanks for having me. Uh-huh. Again, Hans von Spakovsky with the Heritage Foundation. Also, Clark, I appreciate your handing this to me. We just learned that the governor has just announced that Oregon schools will remain closed through April the 28th, extending that mandate by four weeks. Again, Oregon Governor Kate Brown uh, extended the statewide school closure until April 28th in order to slow the spread of COVID-19. She signed an executive order lengthening the school closure to a total of six weeks. She initially announced a two-week closure that would uh, have ended on the 31st of this month, saying, I do not take the decision to extend school closures lightly. Uh, She had a press conference earlier today. This will have real impacts on Oregon students, parents, and educators, but we must act now to flatten the curve and slow the rate of COVID-19 transmission in Oregon. Otherwise, we face a high strain on our medical system and greater loss of life. Uh, to this disease. Schools are to remain closed through Tuesday, April 28th. Districts are to provide learning supports and supplemental services to students and families during the closure period, including meals and child care. This includes the delivery of food assistance and offering child care for essential health care professionals and first responders. School districts may call on public school educators and employees to deliver limited learning and support services, and each district will pay all their regular employees during the closure. Finally, the Oregon Department of Education, Oregon Health Authority, and Department of Human Services are directed to support public schools in the uh, continually um, of mental health uh, services. The, the governor apparently has also signed two additional executive orders today. The first limits restaurants and takeout orders only and bans gatherings of more than 25 people. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as millions of Americans are urged to limit their activities, our activities with the coronavirus outbreak, many are wondering when life may return to normal. A scientific report released on Monday offers a pretty grim scenario of how many could end up, well, dead if no actions are made to limit the spread of the virus, which tells us this is deadly serious, social um, distancing and so on. Well, the U.S. Surgeon General Jerome Adams told Fox & Friends on Monday that at this moment in time, the U.S. is at a critical inflection point in the country with regards to COVID-19 infections. People, we are where Italy was two weeks ago in terms of our numbers. He went on to say, and we have a choice to make as a nation. Do we want to go the direction of South Korea and really be aggressive and lower our mortality rates? Or do we want to go the direction of Italy? Well, in three weeks, Italy went from 76 confirmed cases of coronavirus to more than 27,000 in three weeks, including a death toll that has uh, topped 2,100 as of Tuesday. When you look at the projections, there's every chance that we could be Italy, but there's every hope that we will be South Korea if people actually listen. People actually socially distance themselves and people do the basic public health measures that we've all been talking about as doctors all along, such as washing your hands, a simple thing, covering your cough, very simple thing, and cleaning your surfaces. Well, Walter Riccardi, a member of the World Health Organization and a consultant for the Italian Health Ministry, said last week that life could return to normal by summer, comparing a COVID-19 pandemic to the SARS outbreak in 2003 that ended in May or June. I have the impression that if we are lucky and all work together, we should get through this to summer. Uh, That's when we should be able to return to normal life. So this is going to be quite an extensive period of time that we 
need to be very careful about how we conduct ourselves. They went on to say the U.S. has seen a steady rise in infections since the outbreak began with at least 4,600 confirmed cases and 85 deaths as of Tuesday morning. A report released on Monday by an epidemic modeling group at Imperial College London paints a pretty stark picture of how the numbers of infected uh, could grow in the U.S. and in the U.K. if efforts are not made to slow the spread of the virus. If no control measures or spontaneous changes in individual behavior are undertaken, the authors noted that a peak in daily deaths could occur in about three months, somewhere between June the 20th in the U.S., In an unmitigated epidemic, scientists predict that 2.2 million deaths in the U.S., which doesn't account for the effects of health systems being overwhelmed in regards to mortality. Well, critical care bed capacity at hospitals would also be exceeded as early as uh, the second week of April in an uncontrolled epidemic with an eventual peak in ICU and critical care bed demand that is over 30 times greater than the maximum supply in both countries. Well, the epidemic is predicted to be broader in the United States than in Great Britain, and the peak is slightly later, the study authors um, noted, that the larger size of the U.S. will result in more distant localized epidemics across states. Well, the global impact of COVID-19 has been profound, and the public health threat it represents is the most serious seen in a respiratory virus since the 1918 H1N1 influenza pandemic, the report's authors also noted. Well, in the report, the group of 30 scientists noted that there were two fundamental strategies that were possible to combat the virus. Mitigation is the first, which would focus on slowing by not necessarily stopping the epidemic spread, would reduce peak health care demand while protecting those most at risk of severe disease from infection. The other strategy is suppression. Uh, It it aims to reverse epidemic growth, reduces the case numbers to low levels and maintains that situation indefinitely. So mitigation and suppression. Each policy has major challenges, the study's authors point out. An optimal mitigation policy noted in the study that combines home isolation of the subject cases, home quarantine of those living in the same household as suspect cases, and social distancing of the elderly and others at risk of severe disease may help to reduce peak health care demand by two-thirds and deaths by half. So there's a significant impact following these simple strategies has on our neighbors. President Trump announced on Monday a set of guidelines that he said Americans should follow to prevent the further spread of COVID-19, including that large swath of the population isolate themselves and everyone avoid social gatherings or groups of more than 10 people. Health experts have echoed the need for people to take precautions to help, flattening the curve, they call it, in order to provide appropriate medical care for patients. It's really important that we keep talking about flattening the curve. That's a quote from infectious disease expert Dr. Dina Grayson. The whole concept here is that we want to try to limit the spread of the infection so that we don't have this huge surge of patients suddenly rushing to the hospitals and overwhelming our hospital system because we only have a limited number of hospital beds, of ICU beds, and of ventilators. Well, Dr. Mark Siegel also stressed the need for social distancing, which includes sitting six feet away from each other, washing one's hands, and using disinfectants. Uh, It has to do with how contagious a virus is, and this virus is highly contagious, meaning for every person that has it, two or two and a half more people will get it. So if you're at a bar drinking with your buddies or you're at a cafeteria eating with friends, which everybody is still doing, unfortunately, it's a free for all. He added it's going to spread from one person there to two more. Now, fortunately, we are in the process in the states of Oregon and Washington of 
um, isolating ourselves from one another as much as is possible. Restaurants and facilities that we would tend to gather uh, are closed to take out only. So we're hopefully uh, abiding by those rules and um, can help to flatten that curve. Now, the novel, they call it a novel coronavirus because coronavirus is not new. This is a novel form of it. It's known as COVID-19, mostly has outpaced efforts by nearly every national government to prevent its spread. That's why it's called a pandemic. The United States has yet to face the brunt of the disease's effect. So we're just at the beginning of what will be a learning curve. As of now, the virus has reached every state, save West Virginia. It's likely this is only the beginning of the disease, or as Dr. Anthony Fauci, longtime director of the National Institutes of Energy and I should say Allergy and Infectious Disease said, we will see more cases and we will see more suffering. Because of the foreign origin of the disease, the pandemic was relatively slow to reach the U.S., but the Trump administration was quick to enact travel restrictions to and from China. That helped. This early action likely prevented a more pronounced outbreak in February. Indeed, the first confirmed case of COVID-19 in the U.S. was a man who had arrived in mid-January from Wuhan, China, the city where the authorities say the coronavirus originated. Unfortunately, this was too late to prevent cases of community spread in Washington state. Travel restrictions on Europe didn't come until March, and despite widespread incidents of the disease, particularly in Italy. Now the states of Washington and New York both have become uh, new, uh, the, the foci of the um, infection with over 700 cases each. And one of the lingering problems with the American response to COVID-19 has been testing for potential cases. At the beginning of the outbreak in Seattle, an opportunity arose to get ahead of the virus by testing a broad swath of nasal swabs collected as part of the influenza uh, research. However, bureaucratic gridlock prevented that from happening, and researchers were delayed in identifying possible cases of COVID-19 and potentially isolating the disease. Now, compounding that problem, the approved test kits shipped by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention were slow to run and faulty, resulting in many precious hours lost and many inconclusive results. It wouldn't be until the 10th of this month that all 50 states had public labs with verifiable diagnostic tests for COVID-19. Well, in the meantime, the Food and Drug Administration announced a policy allowing numerous sophisticated labs and hospitals, universities and private labs to conduct their own testing without what's called an emergency use authorization. Well, after that policy, new testing sites were set up by institutions like the University of Washington, University of California, San Francisco and the Mayo Clinic. Now, between the 29th and the 13th, that's February and March, the FDA issued emergency use authorizations to three alternative tests for COVID-19 that were designed by the New York State Department of Public Health and two private companies. In uh, remarks on Sunday, members of the White House Coronavirus Task Force said that altogether, some 2,000 laboratories will be able to process nearly 2 million tests this week. The emergency use authorizations uh, for The two companies, the private companies, were issued within 24 hours of the FDA's receiving the respective applications. And this marks a stark increase in agility compared to uh, early testing logjams resulting from bureaucratic inflexibility. So that is definitely a win. Well, it remains to be seen whether these measures meet expectations, but the decision to leverage private and local resources undoubtedly will lend much needed flexibility to America's response to this deadly virus. Now, the reaction has um, has not been limited to medical and public health institutions, but has grown to include organizations like the NBA, Major League Baseball, numerous universities, and the Catholic Church, to name a few, all canceled 
canceling or delaying events to inhibit the spread of the virus. Now, some state and local governments have taken more drastic steps. In Los Angeles, the mayor there ordered closures of bars, restaurants, clubs, theaters and other establishments. In the state of Oregon and Washington, steps have been taken in that direction as well. Ohio's governor ordered all bars and restaurants to close except for carryout and delivery services. And although private organizations and institutions are doing well to discourage and decrease large gatherings, these orders by mayors and governors are heavy-handed. They almost certainly will help to reduce the spread of the virus, particularly as Americans still seem blithe about the virus and its transmittability. But it would be preferable for more Americans to voluntarily practice social distancing. Now, we hope that's happening a bit uh, better. Well, a more hopeful development, testing has begun on a new vaccine, COVID-19, rather against it. Uh, That was developed by the National Institutes of Health, working with a biotech firm, Moderna. But again, that's a year and a year and a half away from uh, being made public. So the next round of this a year from now, once things have um, died down a bit, is probably when it's going to be most effective if, in fact, this vaccine works. This is only the first phase of three Uh, And it may take, as I mentioned, a year or more before it's ready for wide-scale use. The three phases of the uh, process are intended to show that the vaccine, vaccine rather, under study doesn't harm healthy people and that it works. The American response has had mixed results, but at least we're on the right track to addressing this deadly virus. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about things you can do right now to stop the spread of the virus. Each one of us has a part to play. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about things that can be done right now to stop the spread of the coronavirus. Well, the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention have maintained that the most effective way to prevent the transmission is by avoiding any exposure to the virus. Now, that's easier said than done. That directive seems easy, but it's not uh, as easy as it may seem. Most Americans will still have to go to the supermarket to buy groceries. Plumbers will still have to make house calls, and many municipal workers will still have to report for duty. Well, coronaviruses are considered, uh, I think they call it zoonotic, uh, which means they're transmitted between animals and people. And the World Health Organization says the virus can have mild symptoms, but can also lead to pneumonia, severe acute respiratory syndrome, kidney failure and death. Uh, Despite all of the uh, coronavirus unknowns, little has changed in how medical experts believe you can best protect yourself and your families. Now, the virus is known to affect its hosts with different levels of severity. It's not uncommon for those infected to um, not even know that they have the virus and venture out into the public, which is why it's important for us to follow the guidelines we've been given. One researcher from the Columbia University Mailman Schools, who uh, co-authored research that appeared in the journal Science, said that stealth transmission missions play a major role in COVID-19's spread. You may not have symptoms, but you may carry the virus. We need to keep people apart, he says, according to the Mercury News. The death rate is believed to be at about 2%. It is believed in late February that each infected person spreads that infection to an additional two people. Now, here's what you can do to contribute your uh, to your own health and the health of those around you. First of all, what you need to know, the COVID-19 virus is primarily transmitted in microscopic droplets that are produced in an infected host's cough or sneeze, according to Harvard Medical School. The virus is considered highly contagious. Australia's Department of Public Health says infection can spread from an infectious person 24 hours before exhibiting any symptoms at all. COVID-19 is a new disease, so there's no existing immunity in our community. The health body 
says that means that COVID-19 could spread widely and quickly. We don't have what we need to fight it off internally. Well, the coronavirus can remain on a surface long after someone who was infected had touched it. Harvard says that it's important at the minimum to wipe down those surfaces with disinfectant. It's also important that a healthy individual avoids touching their mouth, their nose, their eyes. The CDC reported that the transmission of the virus from surfaces um, has been documented, but current evidence suggests that novel coronavirus may remain viable for hours to days on surfaces made with uh, different materials. Um, ethanol, hydrogen peroxide, bleach-based cleaners are effective at, cle- at uh, killing those coronaviruses that survive on the surface. Again, hydrogen peroxide, bleach-based cleaners are effective at killing those coronaviruses. Now, social distancing uh, is being practiced uh, by public health officials to keep contagious diseases from spreading. Experts believe the virus is mainly spread through um, uh, uh, droplets that come out of your mouth and your nose. When an infected person speaks or exhales or coughs or sneezes, the droplets travel three to six feet before gravity pulls them to the ground. Speaks, exhales, or coughs or sneezes. Three to six feet, it travels before gravity drops it to the ground. Now, these droplets could otherwise be inhaled or land in the mouth or nose of those nearby. And it's kind of a disgusting thought when you think of it, but social distancing matters. Now, the CDC recommends frequent hand washing with the coronavirus outbreak. The process is simple. Take soap, run some water, scrub your hands for at least 20 seconds. I suggest you sing the chorus of your favorite worship song. You recite a scripture, something that will encourage faith, but at the same time give you the sufficient time to wash your hands thoroughly. And this is especially after being in public or blowing your nose. Soap is considered the best option, but if you don't have access, hand sanitizers with 60% alcohol are recommended. Again, 60% alcohol, so check the label. The CDC insists that one of the best ways to prevent the spread of COVID-19 is to practice covering your mouth with a napkin or your elbow when you cough or sneeze. Now, once you've done it, don't just remove the cloth immediately or remove your face from your the fold of your elbow. Wait a few seconds before you um, to allow the droplets to settle before you uncover your face. And finally, COVID-19 being highly contagious can have dangerous ramifications for at-risk public. If you feel under the weather, stay home. If you absolutely must go outside, wear a face mask if you're sick. If you do not have a face mask, a mask rather, let's say you're on your way to the healthcare facility, do your best to cover your mouth if you cough. The CDC also recommends healthcare workers wear a mask if they treat a coronavirus patient. We're not being told to stay home and lock our doors. One doctor from Vanderbilt University reminds us we're not there yet, and I don't think we'll get there, but people who have coughs and sneezes should stay home as much as possible and call ahead to the doctor's office if they're planning to get their uh, illness checked out. Do call. They'll give you instructions. People who have uh, confirmed coronavirus illness should stay home or um, should those who um, are in close contact with a confirmed case, they should stay home as well, isolated from others in the household who have been uh, prescribed with the virus. Well, scrolling through social media can feel somewhat overwhelming with the coronavirus pandemic, but churches, communities and organizations are pretty committed to combat the rising anxiety with positivity and hope. Social distancing doesn't have to distance you from your faith in God and the good in the world, those That's the message that many pastors and leaders around the world are trying to convey through online platforms in their effort to reach the many Americans holed up due to the coronavirus or COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, Nick Hall, who's the founder of Pulse and Year of the Bible, 
says that he started a video series called The Bible Quarantine to offer people some humor, a biblical lesson, and a way to put feet to their faith. People are scared right now, and the Bible has tons to say to us in moments just like these. The Bible Quarantine is our effort to encourage people not to waste these days binge-watching Netflix episodes, but rather to let them change us while we find ways to love our neighbors and to be the church. He's releasing a different video every day. He spoke um, about how you can't cancel church the uh, in the first episode. He noted that on the early church days, people met in their homes and encouraged believers to study God's word because it speaks to us and changes us, especially people who are vulnerable, who are hurt and who are searching. You may not meet in the building you're used to gathering together in, but you can't cancel the church because the church walks out of that building every uh, weekend and uh, functions as members of the body from that point forward. Uh, Brandon Harvey, who's the founder of Good, 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 a host of Sounds Good podcast, is giving away the, the next edition of his good news focused paper free uh, to anyone who wants it, especially uh, to hospitals. We believe deeply in the power of good news to support our mental health, help us breathe easier and encourage us to make a difference. His uh, nonprofit writes and uh, he adds on Twitter, our hope is spread by hope. Uh, VidAngel, a family-friendly app that has a series called The Chosen and The Dry Bar Comedy, is making content free for the next uh, few weeks as well to encourage people. On the Church Home app, Church Home app, uh, which already offers church at the palm of your hand, pastors Judah and Chelsea Smith lead uh, daily guided prayers. Theos U, that's T-H-E-O-S-U, an online Netflix for Christian theology used by megachurch pastors, offers people who are struggling with questions about their faith to find biblical answers on topics like hell, creation, faith, God's love, and so on. Churches like Crossroads Church in Cincinnati are partnering with local schools to get food, cleaning supplies, and activity packets to kids who rely on school lunches for their meals. And on top of that, they're partnering with the medical community to find masks and supplies, bringing coffee and donuts to hospitals daily, offering to help with child care solutions, and so on. Franklin Graham's disaster relief nonprofit, Samaritan's Purse, is airlifting a 68-bed emergency field hospital to northern Italy. Uh, That's today. And the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews created a $5 million emergency fund to help elderly and Holocaust survivors in Israel cope with the coronavirus. The group is committing to help an additional 15,000 Israelis above the age of 75 with food and other essentials. So the church is functioning as the church, even though we are somewhat isolated from one another. And the Internet is a great way to either connect with your own uh, body, uh, the church that you belong to, or with others who are providing encouraging content. So that's encouraging uh, to hear. Now, we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we'll talk about 10 practical ways you can shine the light in this very dark time. Christianity Today's Ginger McPherson wrote an op-ed and had some great suggestions. We'll share them with you when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with John Ellis, author of The Breakdown of Higher Education, How It Happened, The Damage It Does, and What Can Be Done. Also, our Radiothon on Thursday has been postponed. We'll tell you more about that tomorrow. Uh, but we have a special treat for you, so I hope you'll plan on joining us. That's uh, Thursday on the program. Well, as I mentioned, uh, as we're confronting the coronavirus, I think many of us are looking for practical ways as followers of Jesus to shine our light in dark places. Ginger McPherson, writing for Christianity Today, offered some practical ways that we can be a light while still practicing common sense and abiding 
abiding by the social distancing wisdom of medical professionals. These uh, things uh, are um, suggestions, and the majority of them can be done within the security of your own home. Lean into the Holy Spirit, however, and let him guide you. But whatever you do, do something. The time to act is now. First of all, um, for the elderly and those with compromised immune systems, give them a call. Listen to them. Laugh with them. Laughter can truly be great medicine. If you know them personally and you are young and healthy, offer to deliver their groceries or other errands that might be helpful to them. No human contact is needed. You can simply pick up the groceries and leave them at the uh, the porch for them to take inside. For your neighbors, write a note introducing yourself and put it in the mailboxes of the homes or apartments around you. In the note, tell your neighbors you're a Christian and offer to pray for them or to provide whatever support you feel that uh, you might uh, that might meet their needs. Also, don't forget to include your contact info so they can respond. And for service workers, thank them profusely. Every person you encounter, the mail carrier, the plumber, the cashier at the grocery store, the Starbucks drive through barista, the security guard, they are people too. Encourage them, let them know that you see them and you see how hard they are trying to do their jobs in the midst of what may seem like a cha- like chaos at times. For a single mother or low-income family, offer to help with their child care needs. Have a weeknight pizza meal delivered, order a box of diapers, leave a puzzle or board game at the front door. Every little bit helps, and the reality that they aren't alone can help even more. And for small businesses near you, buy a gift card or two that can be redeemed later on a birthday for your anniversary or even for Christmas presents to relatives and friends. Buy directly from the business online or by calling rather than through a secondary source to really make a difference. And if you can, make sure to encourage the employee, manager or owner by telling them you care. For medical professionals, send a text and let them know how you support them as they stand on the front lines of this fight. Remember to encourage their family members, too, who may be waiting anxiously at home. Offer to mow their lawn or wash their car to help with other maintenance needs. Most of all, just make sure they don't feel alone. If you're concerned, you can be sure that uh, even more concerned, especially about um, what they can uh, be bringing home to their families. So be sensitive and show them love and certainly pray for all of the above. For out-of-school children, if your child's class has a private email chain or some other way to electronically connect, send out a message to the other students' parents of that class offering to provide PB&J sack lunches every week. Uh, left on the porch of any child who might want or need it uh, for whatever reason. If that seems too invasive or unsafe, consider leaving some non-perishable prepackaged uh, snacks for kids that uh, that uh, they can take. Just make sure you remember parents and children alike want dignity. No parent will be willingly admitting that they're struggling to feed their children. They might, uh, however, accept a gesture like that. For the homeless and needy, take an extra sack of groceries, soap, blankets, or Uh, clothes to your local food bank or homeless shelter. Food banks will likely be overrun with those who need help, and they depend heavily upon donations from others to stay stocked up with provisions and supplies. And if you can and are healthy, donate blood. Those who are seriously sick often need invasive uh, medical treatments, and those treatments can include extra pints of blood. Even a single pint can help save a life. And last but not least, certainly where we begin and end, whatever we do, this is a Uh, is prayer. This is probably the greatest thing that you can do. Pray that God will show you creative ways in which you personally can love and serve those around you while still keeping you and your family safe. Pray for those who are anxious. Pray for those who are struggling financially. Pray for your pastors, for your civic leaders. Pray for those uh, who may be sick. Pray often, but also be willing to tell others you are praying for them. 
This is the time not to judge or criticize, to hoard or unreasonably hide, of course, uh, follow social distancing. Rather, it's a time to reach out to one person at a time. It's a time to serve and show compassion, to be moved with compassion, in fact, as Jesus was when he saw crowds um, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We have an opportunity to let our faith shine right now, to let the gospel even Uh, from within the walls of our own homes, so let's not waste it. Instead, let's all choose to give lavishly that life-changing hope that Jesus' light abundantly brings. What a great opportunity. There is no burden too heavy for him, so we can take our concerns uh, to him, and he will hear us. I would encourage you also to pray for the president, uh, as he urged uh, us to do, for those on the front lines of the response, medical and healthcare workers, our first responders, the military, our federal and local leaders. We are confident that he will provide them with the wisdom they need to make difficult decisions and to take decisive actions to protect Americans all across the country. And as we unite in prayer, we're reminded that there is no burden too heavy for God to lift or for this uh, country uh, to bear with his uh, with his help. So let's let's do what we can to be an encouragement and a blessing to others. Once again, tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with John Ellis, the breakdown of higher education, how it happened, the damage it does and what it can what can be done. I want to thank James Blend for producing, engineering a portion of today's program and Clark Hilton engineering the bulk of the program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.